I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, would you turn our attention to your word? Help us to consider it seriously. Open our eyes to see what's here, Lord, and to respond in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel very little need for an introduction to this text because the way that Paul begins it is so arresting. He begins it with this exclamation, O foolish Galatians! That should get your attention. As one translation puts it, O dear idiot Galatians! (laughs) That's the sense of what Paul is saying. And it makes us hopefully ask the question, what would make somebody who claims to be a Christian be considered a fool or idiotic? I would assume that none of you would want this ascribed to you, oh foolish West Sand Lake Community Church people. You don't want to hear that. No one wants to be thought of like that. So our hearts should immediately begin to ponder what makes somebody fall into the category of a fool, of an idiot, in terms of Christianity. No one wants to be called that. Of course, the Galatians wouldn't have wanted to have been called that. But something about their manner of life was beckoning Paul to call them that. And this doesn't come, of course, from a heart that is hard towards the Galatians. Paul writes as a pastor who cares deeply about this church that has received the gospel, believed in Jesus Christ, but now is being led astray. The deception that the Galatians have fallen under is what has led them to be called fools. Somebody has come among them and has been teaching them another gospel. Paul asks the question there in verse 1, who has bewitched you? He identifies that there is somebody or some buddies who has come among them and is teaching a different gospel than what Paul had preached at first. And the deception is so serious from this false teaching that Paul says, who has bewitched you? 
It is as though the Galatians have fallen under some sort of curse, a spell, a bewitching. The false teachers have been proclaiming a so-called gospel that is so compelling to the fleshly human inclinations that it is as if the Galatians have fallen under a spell. Now, we shouldn't find it surprising to see people who have fallen under the false deception of false teaching to be considered them bewitched because we know that there is somebody ultimately behind all false teaching. There is a deception that goes on. The father of lies is out to deceive and spread deceit. The essence of this false teaching is not something that on the surface looks diabolical. It looks good. It basically tells the Galatians, in order to get to heaven, you need to keep the very law that God gave in the Old Testament. What sounds bad about that? It sounds good. It sounds right. It sounds biblical. Until you realize that the law was given to lead people to the need for Jesus Christ. It sounds good until you realize that you can't keep the law and you're condemned under the law and you have no hope in yourself to keep the law. And so this is a clever diabolical scheme because it puts out something so good that sounds like salvation, but when you try to actually eat that doctrine, you find that it is poison because you cannot keep the very law that you claim will save you. And so Paul sets this out as a distinct gospel. It's another gospel that has no claim on the true gospel. And so Paul sets out to defend the true gospel. But he doesn't do this just by setting out a litany of facts about the gospel. In this section, he starts to apply personal questions to the Galatians so that they can evaluate their relationship to the true gospel. Paul, in a sense, takes the task of a prosecuting attorney and begins to ask penetrating questions of the Galatians to evaluate their relationship to the true God and the true gospel. The path that the Galatians are going down is so contrary to the true gospel that the kind of language Paul feels it necessary to use is that of bewitching, that of folly, that of idiocy. To be foolish doesn't mean they don't have any brains. They're probably as clever as you. They're not stupid, but they're acting stupidly. They're under a spell, and so they're not thinking clearly. Humans do this all the time. They may be very intelligent creatures. There's a lot that we're capable of. We're also the kind of people that are capable of staring at a little rectangle on our hands and become so oblivious to the rest of the world that we can walk right into a fountain of water. Have you seen that video? It happened. We can get so distracted by these little lies or big lies that makes us miss the glory of the gospel all around us. And we become fools, idiots. We become dull to the truth. This is what happens for all who get smitten with a small or with a false gospel. They get smitten with the idea that you need to add works to grace 
when in fact the true gospel is all of grace. So Paul sets out to address the Galatians and their folly, and he really, God uses this to address our own hearts, to save us from this folly. And it will illumine several key truths as Paul takes on his prosecution um, tact and goes after the Galatians with these questions, and it really exposes to us some key truths that will really come down to this basic question. What defines your relationship to God? What defines your relationship to God? Is it, there's two options, what you have done for Him, or is it what He has done for you? What defines your relationship to God? And I think this really is the essential unique aspect of the true biblical and saving gospel is that it settles it down to this fundamental distinction. Is it what you do for God or is it what he does for you? And the biblical gospel says it's what he's done for you. If that's the case, what is to be your response? If God has done it for you, if God has done it all, if that's the, the distinguishing element of your relationship to him, what's your response? Faith. Trust him who did it all. You live a life of faith, a life of trust. So as we work through this text and these questions that Paul asks, I want you to hear five truths that shape the way you consider your Christian life, particularly your relationship to God. Let these truths just kind of soak into your heart and be used as a means by which you can evaluate pretty much every other teaching that's out there. First truth is the truth of the cross of Christ. Before Paul begins asking questions, he gets down into the truth of the cross of Christ. He says in verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before Paul begins asking questions of the Galatians, he comes back to the cross. We should never get too far from that. Our theology, our beliefs about just about everything should never get too far from the cross of Christ. We should sing of it often. We should thank God for it daily. We should trust it only. We should understand it as much as possible. We should be experts in the truth of the cross of Christ. It should be the sunrise of our understanding of God by which we see him for who he is. It should be the daylight by which we walk this Christian life with God. And it should be the sunset of our lives, the only truth that we really cling to as we part to face God, clinging solely to the cross of Christ. The cross is this, Jesus Christ crucified. It's not something that you wear around your neck. It's not the thing on the top of our church steeple. It's not a decoration in your home. The cross is the historical truth that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, died outside of the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, 
and that the power of his blood flows like a river through time to cleanse all who would trust in him for their salvation. If you cannot name off the top of your head five to ten significances of the cross of Christ, then you don't know the cross of Christ well enough. It should be able to just come off of your tongue. What is the cross of Christ and what does it mean? Go. Five to ten, without even the blink of an eye, you should be able to say, the cross is my salvation. The cross is where God's wrath was propitiated. The cross is where the powers of darkness were defeated. The cross is where my sins are atoned for. The cross is where I see the glory of Christ. The cross is where the law is fulfilled. The cross is where I go for the healing of my sin. The cross is where I see the wisdom of God. The cross is where I see the power of God. The cross is where I see the love of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to start dealing with any false theology, any false teaching, you need to start with a right understanding of the cross. What it is, what was accomplished there, what God did, what it means for your salvation. Paul's starting argument that exposes the foolishness of the Galatians is to remind them that when they heard the gospel preached, they heard a depiction of Jesus Christ crucified. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly displayed as crucified. When Paul went to the Galatians and he started preaching, he did not start preaching to them about ethics primarily. He didn't start preaching to them about social issues. He started preaching to them about the gospel of Christ, namely Christ crucified. That's what he held out to them. The cross of Christ and all of its significance for the salvation that they so desperately need. They didn't just hear that he died on the cross. They heard the significance of it. They heard it was the fulfillment of God's plan, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for the salvation of their sins, their salvation of their souls, and the forgiveness of their sins. And when you grasp that truth rightly, that God the Father designed in his mind to send his son to hang on a Roman cross for the pardoning of your sins, and you understand the full orb nature of that, you've now got a sword in your hand that can parry the blows of false teaching all around the world. Because that is the distinguishing element of our life before God, is that Christ died for us. The reason that a right understanding of the cross should help us think truly about the important things is because we see at the cross the monumental intervention of God into this world to rescue guilty sinners from their sins. What did it take to save you from your sins? What did it take to forgive you? What did it take to give you a hope that you could be in heaven one day? It took the Son of God being bloodied on a cross that wasn't your idea. That was God's idea. God did it from start to finish. He planned it. He accomplished it. Christ went. Christ submitted. None of us were begging for the Son of God to be crucified. Nobody understood the cross on our own wisdom. 
It is God's grand intervention and plan to save humanity by the cross of Christ. When you steer away from the cross and the full implications of it, you begin to find another way to try to get to heaven. The cross just utterly shatters any notion that we could be good enough. But when you start to turn your back on the cross of Christ, you start to pursue your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own works of the law as the means by which you will be right with God. There are two different gospels, and one's not really a gospel. John Stott writes, Christ's work was completed on the cross and that the benefits of his crucifixion are forever fresh, valid, and available. Sinners may be justified before God and by God, not because of any works of their own, but because of the atoning work of Christ, not because of anything that they have done or could do, but because of what Christ did once when he died. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. We start there. The truth of the cross of Christ. The second truth is the truth of how you became a recipient of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in verse 2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The second truth we need to consider is how we became a recipient of the Holy Spirit. I heard somebody say this week in one of our meetings regarding the conversation that they had with a non-believer, they said, you will not be able to do that without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can come across as this nebulous idea. You wonder, what kind of role does he have in my life? Who is he? What does he do? But the first thing that you really need to realize is the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person of the triune God. He possesses all the attributes of deity, omniscience, omnipotence. He has all wisdom. He possesses full knowledge of the mind of God. He is eternal. He has always existed, will always exist. And the basic teaching of the New Testament regarding the Holy Spirit is that those who are saved by Christ receive the gift of the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. He abides with you. He lives with you. This is the promise of the new covenant, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, part of the blessings of the new covenant that Jesus Christ inaugurated with his death was that you would get the Holy Spirit living in you, abiding with you. The promise is given in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Peter quotes this in Acts 2. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is a massive part of God's promise that his people, saved by the blood of Christ, would receive his spirit. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is a non-negotiable. It is not a secondary issue. For those who belong to God, you must have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you don't have God. It's as simple as that. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 10 makes it crystal clear. Listen to what Paul writes. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You don't have the Spirit, you don't have God. You don't have God, you don't have salvation. If you don't have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. And so Paul comes back to this issue about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Galatians to draw out the ramifications of the false teaching. How did they receive the Spirit is the question at hand. The New Testament has lots of descriptions of what the Holy Spirit does in our life, in the life of a Christian. What happens to you you, because you have the Holy Spirit? You stopped and thought about that. What difference does he make in your life? Could you go the next week and not have the Holy Spirit in your life and you'd be okay? Some of us wouldn't give it a second thought, practically speaking. Oh, sure, you'll give me the right answer. But practically speaking, making no difference in your life, you presume. But the Spirit has such a significant influence in our life, He gives us the ability to call God Father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Have you been able to call out to God as your Father this week? It's because the Spirit of sonship dwells in you. He gives new life. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Jesus talks about the new birth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He gives you new life. The Spirit reorients our life and puts Christ as Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit gives the mind of God to you. He reveals to you the truth of God's mind, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your future inheritance, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. These are just a sampling of the effects of the Holy Spirit in your life, the things that he does for you. He gives you new birth. He reveals to you the mind of God. He gives you a guarantee of your future inheritance. And on and on, the influence of in, in your life. Effectively, you enjoy the benefits of your salvation as they are administered to you through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So a very simple question comes. It's staggeringly profound. Paul says, let me ask you only this. As he deals with the Galatians and their relationship to the false teaching, Paul can basically strip them of any significance of the false teaching with one question. Let me ask you only this. Having understood the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life and all of the good things that come as a result of it, the guarantee of our inheritance, hope, and peace, and all the fruit of the Spirit, the application of salvation to our life in the new birth, the question asked regarding the Spirit who's radically reoriented the lives of the Galatians and our very lives, the question is this. How did you receive the Spirit? How did He come into your life? Two options. By works of the law or by hearing with faith. Now, if you would presume to say that the Holy Spirit came into your life because you were fully obedient to the law, you have no idea of the magnitude of your sinfulness. We sinners are left bare and open before God under His law. And as we are left bare and open before Him, the full sinfulness of us exposed We cannot claim any good thing coming to us on the basis of our goodness. But when you hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and for those who trust and receive the good gift of grace that he offers of salvation, and that Jesus promises to send those who believe his spirit, you open your arms wide and say, I receive the spirit by faith and not by works of the law. And that sets the whole course and trajectory of your entire spiritual life because the whole foundation of what your life will look like, how you experience God's salvation applied to your life, how you live a life of righteousness before God, how you bear the works of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, how you enjoy the goodness of God, the peace of God, God as Father, is all administered to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you received Him not by works, but by faith. So now the false teaching looks incredibly foolish because the whole of your life is dependent on the Spirit in your life and you received Him by faith and not by works. And so why would you think that you'd retain Him by anything other than faith? You don't retain Him by works. The Spirit is central to your life. He's, in a sense, the beginning, middle, and end of it. How you received him really matters. If it was by works and your goodness, then you retain him by your goodness. And in a moment, if that's the way that he stays with you, he's going to leave you. 
because you're probably going to sin before this sermon is over. One theologian writes, It is sheer folly for men who have entered on the Christian life on the level of high spiritual experience to descend to the level on which the main emphasis is on codes of behavior and regulations governing ritual acts. There's a radical change in your life when you receive the Spirit. Before you receive the Spirit, you're living on this plane, just trying to grovel along under the law of God. But by the grace of God, He sends the Spirit into your life, and He elevates you to this plane to live a life that is distinctly different from what you had ever lived before, with new power, new capacity, new enablement to actually live a life that pleases God, not on the basis of your works, but by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that you have received by faith. You should be able to distinguish all false teaching by this. How did you get the Spirit? By works or by faith? And if you now have the Spirit by faith, don't go backward to try to do things under your own power. Live by the Spirit, or as Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. The third truth that is brought out for us to be able to resist false teaching is the truth of how you continue your Christian life. The truth of how you continue your Christian life. With one simple question, Paul has put the Galatians into the corner of the ring, and it's hard for them to get out of this one. Verse 3, he goes on, however, with another question. Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If you think that you received the Spirit by works of the law, you greatly misunderstand the gospel, God, and the nature of your relationship to Him. It's clear the Galatians didn't receive the Spirit by any other means other than faith as a pure gift that God gave them. Same stands for us. The only way we receive the Spirit is by faith. But now the question could come up, well, that's how I received him. How do I continue this Christian life? You could concede that your Christian life starts by faith, but how does it continue? This is a big question for us. Some would say, yeah, we started by it. We were sinners condemned to hell and desperate for help towards God. God intervened. We received the grace of God, but now how do I continue? Now that we're in the kingdom of God, do we continue now by keeping the Old Testament law? Do we continue by setting up regulations and keeping them? Well, Paul asks the question, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If you began by the Spirit, how are you going to be brought to completion? How are you going to be presented mature and complete before God on that day when you stand before Him? On what basis? You got there on the race by means of the Spirit. Now are you going to run under your own strength? Paul draws out the question. Don't be foolish. Don't think you can start by the Spirit and continue by your own effort. By the flesh. Remember what the flesh is. The flesh is really your old way of living. It's who you are before Christ. It's what you were trying to do and accomplish on your own before Christ intervened in your life. Do you remember that person? 
Do you remember what he or she was like? Some of you can't. Some of you were saved at an early age, and thank God for that. Maybe you could think, what would I be like without Christ? You'd be a horrible person. You were a horrible person. I was a horrible person. Why would I ever want to continue that way? It was awful. We wouldn't be friends. Or if we would, we'd be backstabbing friends. We'd be terrible to each other. We'd live on the plane of humanity merely. But the Spirit came into our lives. He transformed us. And so don't live on the plane of the flesh anymore. That gets you nowhere. You're going to be brought to completion by the Holy Spirit. There's a new way to live now. And it's folly to think there's any other way forward other than living by the Spirit. Paul will develop this further in Galatians and will detail what life in the Spirit looks like and how it's distinct from law-keeping. But for now, know that you cannot live a life pleasing to God on your own strength. Only by the Spirit can now you live. You continue in faith, trusting the promise that has been given to you. Hopefully you know this verse. Philippians 1.6, it would have been a verse that the Galatians should have studied hard, one that they should meditate on and think about. Philippians 1.6 is that great declaration by Paul, that great hope and surety that he has about the Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He uses the same language, but this time it's not beginning by the Spirit and perfected by the flesh, Now it's beginning and ending by God. He began the good work. He will bring it to completion. If anyone is offering to you to run this race of the Christian life by any power other than the Holy Spirit, then they're offering you something false. You need the true Spirit. That's the truth. The fourth truth is the truth about the hardships of the Christian life. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? If you don't know this by now, the gospel is offensive. The freeness of grace just kind of irks fleshly people. The idea that you can be so freely forgiven without earning it. The fact of the exclusivity of the gospel is offensive when you preach that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. People aren't going to like that. They want multiple ways, multiple paths to heaven. They want all rivers to lead to the same ocean. But the gospel is exclusive, and the gospel is a gospel of grace, and it's offensive, and when you live this way and when you preach this way, there are going to be people who don't like it. The Galatians most likely experienced that in the early days of their life in Christ. They were told by Paul in Acts chapter 14 that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. It wasn't going to be easy in a sense because the gospel and gospel life is so distinct from the world that it's going to bring opposition against you. But now the Galatians having run for a little while and experienced opposition and having put their hope in heaven, their treasure in heaven, 
are now confronted with this divergent path where they say, we're going to leave that gospel behind us. We're going to go on the path of works. And Paul asks them, did you suffer so many things in vain? Was it just worthless? Did you go through those hardships and there's no point to it? It was just a waste of time, a waste of suffering. If you remain in Christ, your suffering is not in vain. You will see the infinite gifting and glory of God when you enter into his kingdom to switch from a life of grace to a life of works means that all that you endured for the sake of the gospel is just wasted. It's just gone. Paul has better hopes for them. If indeed it was in vain, he writes this letter with the hope that they will come back to the gospel of grace. Stay true to the gospel. The fifth truth is the truth of what God does for you. This really sums it up. Verse 5, another question from Paul. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Your Christian life, um, I hope, has experienced some amazing moments. You've walked with God through some peaks and valleys of your life. You've seen him be incredibly gracious to you to spare you from great calamities. Or you've experienced great calamities, but you know that they've not been wasted because God's with you and he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. You've probably, I hope, experienced great answers to prayer. You've seen God work in your life in an amazing way. As a church, we've seen great answers to prayer. We've seen God come through when back is against the wall. We've seen God provide when we need him to provide. We've seen him take care of us. We've seen him give us encouragement to love one another. Some of you have even experienced God's healing touch on your physical bodies. He's done a great work in you, and he's relieved you of some burdens that you would have had to carry lifelong. Or maybe you haven't experienced this healing touch, but he's sustained you day by day as you've endured the agonies of this physical life. And you've seen God do these great things for you. He's been kind and incredibly gracious. The Galatians, as a first century church, a first generation church, would have seen God have done great things. They would have seen miracles. They would have seen the power of the Spirit on display. They would have seen probably lame people walk again, blind people see again. Amazing things. You may not have seen that magnitude of miraculous events. You've read about them. You know that they're true. But you know that God has done amazing things in your life. His providence has been phenomenal. His grace to you has been constant. His presence with you unwavering. And so I take this question that Paul asks, is he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? I think that captures just the the Christian life, the life that God is with you, that God is working for you, that God is orchestrating all things in your life towards an ultimate good and end. 
that results in his glory and your good. And the question is, for the Galatians, how did these things come into your presence? And the question for you is, how did these things come into your presence? Was it because you were found to be a law keeper? You followed all of the regulations? You dressed the right way? You got to church on time? You wore the right shoes? You ate the right food? You smiled the right way? You didn't glare at the person in your heart, but you, or in, with your eyes, but you thought about them bad in your heart? Did you keep those external things? Is that why God has done all this good for you? Or is it simply because he's a gracious God and you have received his promise simply by faith with empty hands saying, God, I need you to work in my life and I can't do this life on my own. I need you to intervene. I need you to work. It's not on the basis of my merit, but on the basis of your grace and promise. On what basis have you seen answers to prayer? the presence of the Spirit, the peace that passes understanding. Not because you're good enough, but because God's gracious and you receive that promise by faith. Our whole life, from the cross to resurrection, is just one big dump truck load of grace poured out on you and received by faith. And it's not because you were good enough. And so don't be led astray in your own heart or by false teachers who would hold out to you the idea that you need to add works to grace. So what have we learned? Nothing substantial in the Christian life. From the cross to the spirit to the constant provision of God, Indeed, nothing at all in the true Christian life comes to us by works of the law. Not one drop, not one iota of blessing comes to you by means of works of the law. Not our beginning of our Christian life, not the middle of our Christian life, not the end of our Christian life. Not our justification, not the spirit, not our endurance through sufferings, not the work of God in our everyday lives comes by works of the law. It's all of grace received by faith. To quote John Stott again, this is the difference between them, the two Gospels. The law says, do this. The Gospel says, Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The Gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey. The Gospel brings promises and bids us believe. This is the life we're called to, a life of faith, just like Abraham. He comes up next, but we're not going to talk about him now. Let's pray. Father, we receive uh, your gifts, your blessings, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of the Spirit. We receive it by faith and just want to acknowledge before you that we have not earned it. We do not deserve these good gifts from you. It's all of grace. And give us, Father, the faith to receive these things, to go on 
with a life of faith. Get rid of in us any, uh, any notion about being good enough on our own strength. Help us to live in the plane of the Spirit. To live in that realm, not in the realm of the flesh. Show us how to do that, Lord, as we continue to go through Galatians. May this be illuminating for us. Life-changing for us. Father, even if we've heard these truths a thousand times, I pray that they would be no less fresh to our hearts, that you have been gracious to us by the cross of Christ, with the gift of the Spirit. Father, as we take communion now, would you remind us of what Christ did at the cross in its fullness and significance? Help us to remember his great sacrifice, our great gain through his sacrifice, the full acceptance we have with you. Oh, impress this on our hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.